Welcome to the TeamCast, produced by the Mission Critical Team Institute and hosted by Dr. Preston Klein and Coleman Ruiz, co-founders of the Mission Critical Team Institute, where we ask, research, and try to answer the most common questions vexing the most elite mission critical teams in the world, from special operations soldiers to firefighters, from trauma medics to professional athletes, and from astronauts to tactical law enforcement. And on this first episode, very first episode of the Mission Critical Team Institute team cast, uh, it's just me and Preston, no guests, and hope you guys uh, enjoy the conversation. First team cast for our community is explain why we're doing this now. It's not necessarily obvious, but we have multiple ways we engage with the Mission Critical Team Institute community through summits, courses, and custom engagements, and us being out and about. But because we're not out and about right now during coronavirus, we're recording this on April 1st, 2020, we want to explain why we're starting this podcast now. And it's because the community asked for our continued engagement. That's um, during this time and in the future. So we're going to, the format we're going to follow so people know what to expect is as MCTI does research and comes across events and things that is important to the entire community. As we, as we do now, we're going to collect the data, we're going to collect the input, we're going to collect the perspective, we're going to put it into as cohesive a paper as possible. We're going to post that on our website in a resources section, and then Preston and I are going to do an engagement like this around that topic. And of course, we'll also bring guests on who are relevant players in the Mission Critical Team uh, community, and who are players a little bit more outside of it, but have expertise in the things that are bothering or questions that our, that our teams are, are wrestling with. So that's what to expect in terms of research and where to find it and what's going to happen after we post uh, certain papers, et cetera. And so there'll always be some sort of conversation like this that we'll post to the team cast. Um, why we're doing it is it will be fairly obvious to our, to the community who knows us well now um, who's going to be involved? Preston and I will will almost always will always be the host of the cast, and sometimes, as I mentioned, it'll be the two of us. Sometimes it'll be other people. For anybody listening outside of the MCTI core community, um, which is represented by special operations soldiers to trauma surgeons to urban and wildland fire to astronauts to frontline tactical law enforcement. Um, and, and folks like this who fit into the, the, the pure definition of a mission critical team, which Preston will explain here in a minute, um, that's the core community and that's who we're going to be engaging with. And that's who we're serving as a, as a primary, as a primary group. So one more note before we get started here, um, the topics that you can expect to see in the next 10 to 12 months or, or hear from us about in the next 10 to 12 months, critical versus routine communication risk. What many of you will recognize as the DR4 model, um, detection, recognition, reaction, response, and a reset. This idea of residue, which Preston is finishing our paper on now types of mission critical teams, their differences and their similarities. We're going to talk about the operator life cycle after action reviews There'll be segments on adult learning and decision-making. There'll be a segment specifically and probably multiple segments on the tacit knowledge transfer problem, selection and assessment. And expect to be exposed to some 
topics that I have personally heard Preston talk about over the last nine years that I've been engaged with them. Ideas such as when we seek or plan for or put systems in place to drive predictability, we sacrifice agility and vice versa. Or topics like when we choose legacy over relevancy, then we're on the clock. And Preston will explain those, our community will explain those, but that's, that's quite a few topics for us to cover over the next couple of months on a continuing basis, and, and we look forward to doing so. So um, to save everybody's ears, uh, I'm not going to list out Preston and my bios, but the intent for this first segment here is for us to talk about the history of the Mission Critical Team Institute, where it started, why it started, and um, I'm going to ask Preston to start with some of his initial thoughts, but to take us back to almost the quote unquote, the moment where you realized Preston, that there was, there was something here that was a conversation and a question that wasn't being answered for our teams. Yeah. Thanks Coleman. I think that's that's super helpful. Um, You know, as you were talking, one of the things I realized was that up until now to, to your point, I've been sort of loathe to, to actually speak publicly because um, the privacy of the teams that we work with is so important. Some of it is is actually classified, but some of it is just professionally, um, they are private uh, people. They are discreet professionals and they don't like to speak about the work or take glory from it. And we like to respect that. However, we live in interesting times and um, there's a bunch of people in the medical world right now that could use more support. And so collectively, we've decided to start sharing um, some of the lessons we've learned over the last 12 years. Um, we're not going to get into you know specific details in most cases, but we can get into concepts and useful tools. And so with that said, um, this isn't going to be a, uh, so there I was, man, it was cool kind of a deal, but it's going to be more like, hey, here's what the research and the practice is saying. Here's what actually you you can use on Monday. Um, and uh, that's what we're focused on. Um, to your point about where we all started, uh, where this whole thing started, it was, um, it's interesting that you asked because yesterday um, I was, uh, I was in communication with Vikram Bakru. Vikram um, is one of the leading um, sort of uh, child uh, healthcare advocates in the world. He was one of my students at Wharton. He was getting his MBA while also getting his MD in surgery. So he would take classes in the morning and do surgery in the afternoon. So he's one of these slacker guys. So in 2008, um, he and I and a guy named Chris Warner, um, some folks from the Secret Service, a fighter pilot, some Navy SEALs, um, Will, uh, Will Hodge um, at the time, um, I basically talked my wife into having a dinner um, down at the White Dog Cafe in Philadelphia. And basically the idea was I had been listening and having conversations with these guys. And my background as a wilderness guide and my background in search and rescue and dive rescue, there was all these similarities that I was feeling um, uh, between folks that would come through the Wharton School, where I spent 10 years as um, the director of the Wharton Leadership Ventures Program, running expeditions around the world. And my students would be people like Vikram, who was a surgeon, or, um, you know, Will, who was a SEAL, or, or other people. And it was amazing to me how sort of um, similar the conversations were. For me, I've always been interested in this question, why do some people make it and some people don't? How do people learn to navigate uncertainty? Why have some of my friends lived and some haven't? And most of the people in the mission critical team community at some point or another have had that thought, have, had, have sat back and wondered why am I here and they're not? 
And so I became utterly fascinated with, well, maybe these teams, there's something similar about all these teams and the people that work on these teams um, that maybe, maybe there's something worth investigating. And so we had this dinner and basically what we found out was there, they have more in common than most people realize. And so whether you're a surgeon or a fighter pilot or an NFL quarterback, um, there is a bunch of things that you, your daily lived experience, the way you think, the way you train, the way you prepare is actually very simple. There are some very significant differences for sure. I don't mean to minimize those at all. We'll talk about that, but there's a lot to be learned collectively, collaboratively. And so that began a process of research for the last 12 years, uh, most of it in partnership with Coleman, um, looking at how the most elite teams in the world teach their people how to navigate uncertainty. So how do you become a trauma surgeon? How do you become a Navy SEAL? How do you, um, you know, do any of this stuff? Um, and how do you teach it? How do you learn it? And what are the lessons the rest of us can learn to increase our ability to successfully and sustainably navigate uncertainty? And so that's, that's sort of the background, Coleman. That's where we sort of started um, and then, um, you know, you joined us shortly after that, um, and um, you you know much of the story as well. For the for the community's benefit, Preston, since we're now doing this, it's going to be archived in perpetuity for the rest of our lives, having helped us both, because yeah. now we're on the record. That's right. Um, the, f- t- take us back to the dinner with yeah. Chris and and Will, if you can remember anything, because I think I think just even one anecdote about the stages that the mission critical team Institute went through over the last, you know, let's call it 12 years, an anecdote along the way, something specific from that dinner where you thought, wow, this community is missing this thing or we can do more and or better. Or I think, you know what I mean there. Absolutely. And there was one very specific aha moment where it all came together. So um, a good friend of mine who I've known for about a hundred years, a guy named Chris, um, he's done all the seven summits, I believe. He's, he's been up K2 and Everest. He was my first instructor when I was a wilderness guy. We both started the same place before he became uber famous, along with a guy named Jamling Tensing Norgay, who's the son of Tensing Norgay. And the three of us, um, we came up together as guides, and I invited Chris to come out to the meeting. And he was sitting next to Vikram, who I mentioned earlier. And I asked Chris this question. I'm very curious about one particular question, which is, when do you know as a professional on these teams, when do you know you've moved from amateur status to professional status in your own heart? When do you know you've made that transition? And Chris uh, answered very quickly. He says, I'll tell you exactly was. And I've heard this from many operators since. He says, I changed my relationship with pain. And he said, and, I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't understand. I don't live in their world, so I didn't know what he meant. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, it used to be that when I would climb a mountain, physically, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, to say the least. Um, and he said, so when we, would, when we would do these extended climbs, um, these periods of climbs, I would kind of block out the pain. And then when we take a break, the pain would come rushing back. And it's very demoralizing. And he says, it wasn't until I basically made friends with the pain. I accepted it as part of the deal, like make friends with the beast, they call it. It was at that moment that I knew, okay, I got it. This makes sense. Now, for me, that's super interesting. That's super interesting having a famous mountaineer, a very accomplished, internationally renowned mountaineer tell me that because it's super insightful, except the interesting aha moment happened two seconds later when Vikram Bakru said, it was the same for me. And, I, and we all, everybody turned, the 
fighter pilots and the Olympic athletes, we all turned to Vikram and be like, sorry, what? You're, you're a surgeon. What do you mean? And he says, if you have three surgery, surgeons, uh, surgeries in a day and you lose the first patient because you're doing heart surgery and some of them are going to die. And if the first patient dies, I used to try to block that out emotionally, but it would use up bandwidth and distract me from the second patient. It wasn't until I made, I mourned that patient and managed that experience and processed those emotions in real time did I realize that I was actually a professional. It was that moment, Coleman, when I was like, oh, it's the same. It's totally different, but it's the same. And both of them nodded each other like deep understanding. And it was that moment that I was like, oh yeah, there's a lot here. Yep. And uh, when when we met, Preston, back in 2011, when I was getting when I was coming off active duty from 13 years uh, in the SEAL teams, we, at some point we had this conversation and because I had served as a buzz instructor, um, basic SEAL training for those who don't know, I served as a buzz instructor in 2005, which was, you know, seven years after I graduated training. When you mentioned Chris's quote about, I went from amateur to pro as author of Gates of Fire, Stephen Pressfield would say in his book, Turning Pro, one of these, this version of Turning Pro comes up again and again with people who have had the dark night of the soul moments. And I remember trying to, because I learned it as a student, and in my case, as obviously a student in, in Bud, sitting in the surf zone, doing surf torture for longer periods of time than any human wants to. Yeah. That you can you can play the game of um, escaping the cold water yeah. and like playing some mental tricks, but you don't really turn pro and understand how to deal with this balance between you know what we sometimes just casually call uh, the relationship between physical and mental toughness. Yeah. But you don't really turn pro until you understand that this freezing cold water or this mountain or this operating room or the things that come with being a trauma surgeon, those are all part of the game. Yeah. And as, as Vikram was saying, you know, he had to process these things in real time. This of course takes us to some of these concepts that we're going to talk about in the future, like residue, because there's these residues of experiences. Um, again, we'll get to that later. But so Chris mentioned changed my relationship with pain this was a 2008 dinner. You had this aha moment when Vikram said, oh, me too. Yeah. And so what came next for you and for MCTI? So what came next was um, they basically, at the end of that meeting, um, they they listened to my questions. They were super patient and, and the names are all listed in my dissertation. Um, if you want, if you want more information, we will post that on our website if people are interested. Um, and what happened was they said, hey, Preston, look, if you're really going to study this stuff, you really have to go to our training commands. Um, and um, what happened was is that just around that same time, just shortly after that meeting, I I threw uh, Rich, Dr. Richard Shell at Wharton. I met Tom Marr. And then through Mike Useem at Wharton, I met John Regan at the FDNY. Tom Marr was an active duty SEAL. John Regan was... Um, a captain with the F is a captain or is working a chief in the FDNY um, captain, excuse me. And so um, the, they said, you know, Preston, you really got to go to these, these places. Right. And so, and see the training. And so 
what I did is I got permission basically from Morton because part of my job was traveling and I got permission to start going to some of these commands to look at the training. And to be honest, Coleman, and you've heard me tell this story many times, I was expecting um, that, um, that I would see the most elite teams in the world uh, do amazing, extraordinary jobs. And it turns out as we'll come to find, that's actually not the case. But prior to that, just so you understand the sequencing here, so there was an agent for the Secret Service who was at the meeting, and um, and he said, uh, Preston, you should come and uh, speak, uh, you some see Secret Service training. I was like, that'd be amazing. So as a civilian, I'm like, that'd be extraordinary. And um, and what he did was he got me uh, an interview with the then assistant director, uh, Richard Elias, who was the assistant director of the Secret Service. And I went down to D.C. to the headquarters of the Secret Service, went through. It was the first time I had been through security gates. It's where they ki- keep Oswald's gun. Like, it, it's all this amazing stuff, right, this museum. And, and I go in to meet the Secret Service, the, the, the deputy head of the Secret Service. He comes out of a training. We sit in an empty classroom, and he, inter- and he lets me interview him for half an hour. And at the end of it, you know, I don't know what I don't know at that point, but he's like, well, he's, I, he's, is there anything else I can do, Preston? And I said, well, could I come see your training? He says, I don't know. I don't, I don't run training, but I will ask on your behalf. And a week later, I get this phone call from the Secret Service, and they're like, who are you? And I was like, I'm Preston Klein. They're like, no, no, I mean, who are you associated with? Research, like, are you with a think tank? Is, are you doing university research? I said, no, I'm just trying to figure this out. And they're like, wait a minute, you're just, you're just curious? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we're the secret service. No, you can't come to our training facility. No, go, go get associated with a, with a research or something. And I was like, oh, that does seem reasonable right? That does seem reasonable. Just random dudes can't just show up and ask questions of the Secret Service. So I go back over and it just so happened that two of my sort of colleagues, my advisor at my master's at Harvard, uh, Mike Nuckala, and one of my sort of peer students, Sharon Ravitch, had both come to the University of Penn School of Education, Graduate School of Education, which was the building next door to Wharton. And I knew that after getting my master's in education, I knew I never wanted to get a doctorate. I never wanted to go back to university ever again. Like, no, I told Amy, never again, my wife, Amy. So I walk over to Mike and Sharon and I sit down and I'm like, I think I have to go back and get a doctorate. And they both laugh. They're like, it, it'll be okay, Preston. I was like, I don't think it will, but like, okay, how do we do this? And they were really kind and the ed school is really kind about it, figuring out a way to get me into a program. And that began this series of trainings. And then that began the series of going to these different commands, Tom and John and others, um, and, and just observing and asking questions. Um, I, I do want to pause, though, Colin, because it is important that we know where in history we were when this was happening, because it really does matter. Yeah, go for but it. You have to understand that at that time, 2008, 2009, all of the operators who were post 9-11, so think about this at FDNY, think about the trauma surgeons, think about FBI, think about special operations worldwide. All the people that were entering the schoolhouse to be instructors, this was the first generation of post 9-11 operators entering the schoolhouse, 2007, 8, 9. That's when I'm showing up. So these are folks that don't have the legacy, the tradition. All they have is the fact that they've been fighting the war, like deployment after deployment, fire after fire. They've been burying their friends, and they want to do it better. 
and they're interested in anyone who's asking questions. They want to talk to anybody who might have a better idea because all they've been hearing is old graybeards and silverbacks saying, settle down, sunshine. We've been doing this a long time. Just wait your turn. And they didn't want to wait their turn. They was like, no, we need to fix this now. And so that I, I walked into that environment. If I'd come four years earlier or four years later, we probably would not be having this conversation. It just so happened that people like yourself were very much in this, no, 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 this, not, this is not how we've always done it. We're going to figure out a new way. Yeah, it's true. I was in advanced training in 2008. Of course, we didn't, you and I didn't meet um, until 2011 through Tommy Marr. Um, but at the time, the, our tactics post 9-11, it's now in 2008, it's obviously seven years post 9-11. Yep. All of our peers have multiple combat deployments, of course, at this time. And the tactics overseas are changing deployment to deployment. Yeah. So but to, to meet the operating requirements of the environment. So when we, when we end up in training jobs, as, as you know, Tommy, me, other guys who, you know, we won't use their names now because they're still active duty. Yep. Um, we're looking around going, why does this training manual, why does this training system look yep. the same as it did 15 years ago? Yep. That makes no sense because what we're doing overseas doesn't look anything like this. Now, to be fair, we were moving things and changing things as quickly as possible. What we didn't have time to do because of this rotational nature of the training commands was really understand the tacit knowledge transfer problem, which we'll talk about here in a second. But I just wanted to validate how accurate um, your statement is about that 2008 time period. Um, if if you want to add anything to that, Preston, you can do so. But I think we should we should take two steps back to come to come back forward because you mentioned showing up to those first training commands and people saying, well who are you and why are you here? Yep. And, and the story about realizing you needed a doctorate. But I, I think the community would really benefit from hearing again, it's not normal that a person would show up at the secret service and decide they're just curious about this topic. And yeah. so uh, at, at the time, yes, you weren't in like this research job, yeah. but if you could get us from Preston Klein at 15 yeah. A Preston Klein having a staff job at Wharton and Leadership Ventures, yeah. that would be useful information for the community to understand where your curiosity around this came from. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's always interesting talking about your past, right? Because it involves other people. And you always want to be really thoughtful in a public discourse to be respectful that, first of all, my memories are copies of memories. So some of what I'm saying isn't true by definition, right? That's what memories are. Secondly, I want to be respectful of the people that were there around that time and not sort of drag up a lot of bad memories for them. So I'm going to, I'm going to breeze over some things, but for those of you who understand, you'll understand. Um, I spent uh, fifth grade through 11th grade um, in outside of Detroit on the border of Pontiac and Bloomfield Hills. Um, and I got into a lot of trouble. I had a, a family was in some uh, going through some rough, rough periods and um, a friend uh, uh, said that I could earn some money um, doing some things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. Um, and that put me in front of a judge and a social worker. Um, along the way, though, I lost a friend. Um, a friend was killed. And, you know, when you're young um, and you're experiencing a lot of loss and sorrow and you don't understand it. Um, it impacts you a lot. And it's this one of these things like, 
when do the grownups arrive to fix this? And why is it, why isn't, why do I have to fix it? I'm like a young punk kid. Um, and, you know, in fact, one of the policemen who pulled me over, I remember distinctly, um, he, he's not the first time he had seen me and he was like, I don't know why we're wasting our time with this kid. He'll be dead before he's 18. And since some of my friends, you know, that was not an unusual sort of situation, right? That was, that was, that was reasonable kind of a statement to make at the time. Um, and so I got this social worker named Jane Lanzetta and Jane Lanzetta, you know, she was, you know, it was like goodwill hunting. She's amazing. Uh, she basically told me she loved me every day for two weeks. And, you know, what I learned was that love beats anger. Like you, you can be a very angry, you know, 60 year old kid, but that anger will burn out in the face of just unrelenting love, unconditional, unrelenting love. Like uh, that, that was the first lesson in life. Like my anger, no matter how hot, uh, won't beat love. Uh, and I've remembered that ever since. And she put me in this job um, where I was going to go to Special Olympics for the so summer. for. <laughs> I don't I don't like to interrupt, but for the MCTI community, yeah. that's all the research we have for you, folks. <laughs> Love beats anger every time. Way to go, Preston. How many years did that take? Yeah, like a long time. Um, it's Keep going. Though. Sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Um, you know, so, you know, as you know, all kidding aside, some people do need to get shot in the face, but you know, the truth is that in most things, in most life. Um, love, love will win. And so, uh, she sent me to special Olympics. I was like, I don't want to go to special Olympics. She says the judge and I thought you might feel this way. You should know at 16, your other job is picking up trash on the highway and orange jumpsuits, but special Olympics has nurses. And I was like, Oh, you said special Olympics. I have a passionate, passionate, uh, belief in special Olympics and I definitely want to serve. So what I did was, um, I went there and my job was to move this young man named John from event to event where John was going to be a judge. John had uh, muscular dystrophy. And somewhere along the way, he was 18 years old. And I think he told me his life expectancy was 21 to 25, something in there. And I'm a 16-year-old kid. And one day, um, he has to go to the bathroom. I've been helping to raise my two younger brother. Helping kids go to the bathroom is not new to me. And all the nurses were busy. And so I was like, come on, let's just take you to the bathroom. I, I don't want you, you know, suffering. We become friends. So, you know, 16-year-old man, young man, and an 18-year-old boy, we're in the toilet stall. I got to lift him on the toilet, take his pants down. It's awkward, right? It's uncomfortable. And while I'm lifting it up, he weighs 90 pounds, if that. I'm lifting him up to put it on a toilet seat. And while he's close to me, while I'm lifting it, to try to break the tension, he goes, tell me again about your problems. And it was in that moment where I realized I had spent the summer complaining to this guy about how hard my life was, as all 16-year-olds do, all self-interested, narcissistic 16-year-old boys obsessed with all their own problems. I had been telling this kid who would be dead in less than 10 years, who's suffering day to day, how hard my life was. And it really was like a baseball bat up, you know, like God takes a baseball bat and hits you upside the head. It was one of those moments where I remember leaving the bathroom stall going, everything has to change. Like everything, the way I'm thinking about all of this, my life, everything has to change. And it was in that moment that I started asking myself, how do I make this situation better? How do I make it so that kids fall, my younger brothers, whoever else, it doesn't have to suck this bad. Like, how do we reduce the suck? And so that was the first part of a very long journey trying to understand, you know, and, and you know, I end up working with the Ronald McDonald House camp for kids with cancer. I work with juvenile delinquents coming out of prison. And, 
you know, much of my youth and my work was with people that were dying um, in one form or another, children who were dying. And later as an EMT um, and search and rescue, my job was to work on uh, people that were injured and dying and often my peers or children. And so I, I bring that up because right now, one of the motivations for doing this podcast or doing this work is we've gotten, we've gotten recent notes from, from docs saying, I just had to intubate a team member in the hospital. And for me, you know, that is a button for me. I was telling my wife, Amy, that's the thing that will like clench my heart. Like the idea of as hard as things are, you have to stop and you have to look in the the eyes of your friend, your partner and say, I'm going to do the best I can. And I wish I could do more. And so that feeling, if you could just hold on to that visceral feeling, that is what underpins much of the MCTI research. It's our friends, Coleman are friends. This is not colleagues, they're not partners, they're not clients. They're our friends. They're on the edge of things and they need help. And everybody assumes because of the Navy SEALs or the Mayo Clinic or whatever, they have all the help they need. And the truth is they don't. Um, and so we're in the business of trying to support the superheroes. And I know it sounds weird, but they need all the help they can get. Yeah, it's true. Uh, again, back to 2011, I remember I was uh, within months of getting out of the teams. Uh, Tommy Marr introduced us. I was sitting in my pickup truck in on a phone call with you, the first phone call we ever had together. And I remember asking you, it actually took you a couple months to answer this question. Hopefully I was nice about it, but uh, I can't be sure if I was nice about it. But, but I asked you a series of questions around why do you care and what's in it for you? And, and we didn't get to that answer. In a way, I had the same questions about what you were up to and what MCTI was up to as the Secret Service did back in 2008. And you, instead of answering, which you always do so well, you presented a series of questions and, and topics and associations with other groups that I had no exposure to really, other than working with some of our groups overseas, you know, together in these joint environments. But you started to describe these other teams that I had never had any exposure to. And it wasn't until 2012 at the Mission Critical Team Institute Summit at FDNY up on Randall's Island, where I saw some of these other communities describe communities, by the way, that are as elite as any community I've ever been around. Some folks stand up in that group of 150 people that we get together, you know, twice a year, of course, once in the U.S. and once in Australia. And some of those groups say, these are the issues, these are the questions, this is the stuff that we're wrestling with. And I have this stark like memory just seared into my brain of me sitting at the table with Tommy and a few other guys thinking, there's no way, there's no way they don't have this figured out. Yeah. And it turns out that nobody did. Nobody. And, and what's it, right? It yeah. is... For everybody listening, what isn't figured out is, is, a, is a list of these topics that we're going to be discussing over time and we discuss all year long. But be that as it may, the point is, is there's an extraordinary amount of questions that need to be answered. And if nothing else, enough, there's, there's a lot of like, holy shits, that happened to me too or us too. And that, that in itself is useful. Yeah. Um, so, okay. That, that gets us up to now. And again, if you have anything to add, go ahead, and then I'll, I'll come back to another question. So just that, you know, just to your point, right? So I mentioned, you know, going to Tom, going to the FDNY, going to the FBI's uh, crisis, critical incident response group, uh, 
you know, going to Penn Trauma. And it was all of these people that I so admired and looked up to and still do. And many of them are very close friends of mine now. And I remember thinking, man, I'm going to go there and I'm going to learn a lot. And so my first, um, my first sort of real aha moment was very, very early on. It was one of my first visits to one of the elite, what are called special mission units in the United States. Um, and it's, it's, it's an elite um, special operations military unit, the best of the best, so to speak. And um, I was observing what's called um, CQB or CQC, close quarter battle or close quarter combat. And basically what that is, is imagine that there's a room like a human-sized rat maze with no roof. Um, and it's all human size. And on, on the tops of the roofs are all these, um, these walkways that are called the rafters. Um, because it, in the old days, they used to literally sit up in the rafters of the building and look down. And what they do is they use it as live fire exercises to practice things like hostage rescue. So you'll get a two-man team or a four-man team or something else that will swarm into a room to learn how to clear the room, you know, kill or capture the bad guys and save the good guys. I mean, the math here is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of nuance, right? It's, it's, it's about speed. It's about violence of action. It's about precision. Um, it, and it's, it's a, it's, it takes a long time to learn how to do it well. So when I first went to the first one, you know, this, these are the, these are the best special operations folks in the world. And, I, and I'm sort of clueless to that at the time, quite honestly. I, I don't know enough about the military at the time. I just know that they're, they're, they look very dangerous to me and they're all, they have a lot of kit on, they have a lot of gear on and they have a lot of weapons and I'm wearing body armor, which is heavy and hot and a helmet, which is weird and glasses and ear pro. And I got my little like notepad and pen and I'm standing in between two or three just enormous human beings, like physically huge human beings. This is back when, you know, they've got big beards and sleeve tattoos and, and just super intimidating folks. But at the same time, and, you know, many of them are like, who's this guy? Who's the professor guy? Why is he in the rafters? But there's other people that are just genuinely curious because they, special operations, we talk about it all the time. You can't be dumb and be in that community. Everybody in that community is actually really intelligent. And so they're naturally, they've weaponized their curiosity. They're naturally curious people. So they're asking me about what's going on. And I'm just trying to explain, here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out at the time, why did some people make it and some people don't? How do we learn to do that better? And they found that as a compelling question. They're like, that is a good question. How, what is that? And I was like, I don't know. And they're just like, we don't know either. And I said, well, what if we just sort of partnered? And the reason that that partnering came up is because of this phenomenon where when the first evolution of, of the training went through and they, and they cleared the room and the person, the, the, the guy on the ground managing the room yelled clear, meaning everyone safe your weapons, right? Take off your ear pro because we're going to give you feedback, right? We're going to do an after action review of that training evolution. And they look up into the rafters next to these huge guys I'm next to. And one of the old gray beard silverback types, right, is up there. And he's got his, his chew in. He's spitting into a Red Bull cup. And they say, okay, you got any feedback on number one, man? And he, and he says, yeah. And he steps up to the railing, spits in his cup, leans down, points at the number one candidate and says, hey, dirtbag, you suck, suck less. And I'm sitting there with my pen and my pad as an educator, right? Masters from Harvard. And I'm like, that is super unhelpful. Like that is deeply unhelpful. He knows he sucks. He wants to suck less. 
if he knew how to suck less, he wouldn't suck. This is like, in terms of like helping them be better to navigate uncertainty, this is useless. Except that when he was done giving feedback, when this gray beard was done giving feedback, he, he leans back in the rafter, looks over all his buddies and they all nod and they're like, good one. And I'm like, not good one. That is not helpful. And so when we debrief the day, I genuinely was like, maybe they know what they're doing and, and I've got all it wrong. And so I went to my liaison and he asked me how things were going. And I explained this very basic thing, which is what I don't understand is the research I've read is that you can stress somebody, do stress inoculation, super important. We should be doing that for these teams. Or you can teach someone, they can learn, but you can't do both at the same time because of what's called the Dodson-Yerkes curve or the Yerkes-Dodson, I forget which one. But it's this idea that you need a certain amount of stress to learn, but too much and you go into overload. And these guys were overloading these candidates every moment. And I was so, I was deeply confused. And so this particular instructor, he listens to me talk. And then he says, let me say that back to you to make sure I understand. And I was like, okay, I was totally confused. And he says, so what you're saying is we can stress people and we should, or we can teach people, but we shouldn't do it at the same time. And I was like, well, that's what the research says. And he says, great, we'll do that now. And turns around and starts walking away. But you gotta remember, like, I haven't even been approved to be a doctoral student yet. I'm not even a doctoral student, right? I'm just a random guy trying to understand what's going on. I should not be the guy that influences the, the most elite team in the world, how they select and train people. So I literally chase after this person. I'm like, whoa, 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 no, don't, don't change anything. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, Preston, here's the thing. I know you think we've got this all sorted, but two weeks ago, I was overseas in a gun battle, in a gunfight. I found out that I was coming back to run the shootouts, run the schoolhouse. And what I got was a PowerPoint and a used manual that we don't even like. And that was my full training. I have a high school education. I'm an NCO. And the last time I've been in this building is when I was a candidate. I'm making this up as I go. And I was like, oh my God. And Coleman, the thing is, is that people might in the audience might be going, wow, that's a mess. Here's the problem. That's true everywhere. It's true at NASA. It's true at the FBI. It's true everywhere. And everyone assumes that because you can do a thing, you can teach a thing. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. And there's consequences of getting that wrong, consequences of the country and to our survival. We have to do it better. And so that's that's what led to it all, Coleman, that moment where, and just to bring it full circle, when he said, I said, well, hold on, wait. He says, Preston, we could use your help. Like, we don't know what we're doing, but if you're willing to ask your questions while we're asking our questions, we can partner. And that's what started the collaborative inquiry process. It's not me coming in to tell those people what to do or you, Coleman, telling them what to do, because we don't know. It's us coming in and saying, what are, the, what are the friction points? What are the dominant? Let's think about it together. You tell me what the lived experience is. We'll tell you what the research says. But here's the really most important thing, and then I'll be quiet. It's that you got to remember that they're all experts. They've already achieved expertise. What they lack is a language to describe that expertise, what we call the tacit knowledge transfer problem. We know how to ride a bike. We can explain it to anybody. It's the same thing with surgeons, with pilots, with astronauts, with special operations, tactical law enforcement, fire. So can what, what can we do? How can we make it 1% better that we can get a more precise language to describe these phenomena? 
And we'll talk more in detail about that as we move on, as Coleman's mentioned, because there's a lot of nuance to that, but that's what started it all. Yep. Thanks for that, Preston. A couple of, because I know, you know, for the folks who are going to be listening, the, the advantage I have is, as you know, Preston, as the group, the folks that I know in the group, which are, which are a lot of our community, of course, from the summits and, and other things, I spent a lot of time in the room um, sucking and hopefully sucking less. And then a lot of time, of course, in the rafters. And what's been interesting to me, and I know interesting to our whole community, is you see some differences between basic training and adult learning and how it sort of evolves. And then advanced training, this this expert arrives at an advanced training level, which is when I was serving in a training capacity in 08, that was different than when I was a budget instructor in 2005. And having dealt with all of the folks in our community now and a lot of the work that we do in professional sports and athletics, you you can see lots of differences between a basic trainee and an advanced trainee for, for lots of different reasons that we'll talk about, but for our, for our community or somebody um, related to the MCTI community, who's maybe hearing this for the first time and might be sitting there thinking, well, I am an expert. I did come from overseas or in the field or in my sport. And when I became, when I went from athlete or player to coach, or I went from operator to trainer, I didn't there. They might be thinking, cause I was, you know, for a long time, I'm not an idiot. I'm still training yeah. well, like we're not stupid here. And yeah. so that's totally true. The big realization for me, for us, for most of the folks in the MCTI community is, is what Preston mentioned, which is, wow, you know, the truth is, is we come from, I'll use overseas, you know, special operations example, or a firefighter who comes out of the field is now at the schoolhouse. It's like, we, we actually do know exactly what we need to do to train. And we all have the skills. The interesting thing, though, is that is, of course, the last topic, which is, do we have a consistent language and mechanism to transmit that knowledge, to transfer part of that knowledge in a way that's consistent over time? Because if we don't, or we don't spend at least some time working on that problem, what we end up doing is taking our own individual lived experience from event to event during the time that we serve in training and influencing the students, you know, our teammates coming through training based on our experience, which frankly is limited. And then Coleman transfers out and Preston comes in and then it's Preston's lived experience, which is useful and amazing, but different than mine. And so when it comes to, you know, this perspective of uh, an experienced operator coming into a training capacity the truth is, is you know exactly what to do. The, the challenge for us as trainers is when we collect all those experiences together and we deliver that as a system, is that a coherent message to the folks coming through training? And unequivocally, it was not a coherent message for us. It was like, if I spoke to Fred, he said one thing. If I spoke to Preston, he said another thing. If I spoke to Tony, he told me a different thing. So that sucks, suck less some instructors would be like, yeah, that, that run you did there, Coleman, was actually okay for these reasons. So-and-so just thinks it sucks because he thinks it should be done like X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. And so this is a, is a run-on idea, but I, but I want to keep us moving on, you know, shared language and, and tacit knowledge transfer, if you have any more comments on that. 
Yeah, the, the thing I do want to just pause to this community and those that are listening right now and say a couple of things that are going to be unwelcome. And that is, is that we work with a very specific group of people under a very specific definition. So when we talk about mission critical teams, we're talking about small teams, small group dynamics, four to 12 people um, that are indigenously trained. I mean, you don't go to college to be an FDNY. You don't go to college to be in the Navy SEALs. You go to them. They train and educate you. And it's to deal with rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets in 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is catastrophic. I'm telling you this because people are like, wow, these are really fascinating. I can apply them to our to your, my life. Yes and no. It's really important that you take a moment to figure out who am I talking to? Am I talking to college-age students or am I talking to 50-year-olds? Am I talking to people that have to make a decision in six months or six months or in six seconds? Because all of that heavily, heavily impacts the approaches that you use, the theories that you use, the frameworks that you use, none of this is a kind of a silver bullet or one size fits all at all. We're talking about very specific groups of people being asked to do very specific things in very specific contexts against very significant consequence. Um, and what we're seeing now is that people who have not lived in that world, in medicine, for example, are entering that world. And they don't know what they don't know. And what Coleman and I are trying to do is bridge them into the fact that you're not in Kansas anymore. Like there's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen to you that, that you will think you're in control of that you are not. And so you have to, one of the things that Coleman mentioned earlier is that you're going to have to start moving from this idea of contingency planning and being able to predict the future through systems and planning and start moving toward this idea of building the capacity within yourself and your team to adapt to whatever emerges, whatever shows up, zombie apocalypse, whatever it is, aliens land, you and your team will weaponize your curiosity and you're going to figure it out. But to do that, some things have to get built beforehand. Yeah, and they, and they you know, we're not going to go deep on this one specific thing that I'm going to mention here, Preston, but it. It was, a, it was a huge light bulb for me, again, you know, nine years ago when we first met, and I was at the first summit, and I heard you say something about, you know, two mission-critical teams that are similar but different, let's take special operations and trauma surgeons, have one thing, and you were saying this to explain um, how how building capacity matters based on the type of environment you're in. I think you said to all the firefighters and the special operations folks, you plan and build us and build into your plan certain contingencies. And then you go out and, and you meet the enemy or you go, or you go meet the fire where it is. Yeah. And you were telling the whole group, remember that for the surgeons, emergency room trauma surgeons, they actually plan to own their environment. And, and the target, quote unquote, comes to them yeah. via, you know, the ambulance, of course. And the, the, the simple idea that those two environments hold pretty different operating characteristics yeah. is incredibly important to touch on now, just so everybody can understand, you know, the different problem sets that we're, that we're working on with everyone. Absolutely. And this is what gets so interesting, right? Because it creates huge cognitive dissonance. So what Coleman's describing is that if you are a firefighter or you are, um, let's choose wildland fire, right? You're, you're, you're a wildland firefighter or, um, or an FBI agent. When the phone rings, you don't know where you're going to go. 
you just know you and your team are going to get in your vehicles and you're going to head to some problem and you'll figure it out when you get there. That's your mindset. That's your mindset every day. You're training to leave home, to go out and go in search of a problem. And as a result, you don't get to control the environment, the weather, the tone, the lighting, the rain, the, you know, there's very few things you can control. And then you're, so you're on a sort of expeditionary mindset. When you're in a hospital, you own your surgical room, you own the temperature, you own the, the sound, you own the lights, you own the solid ground, the flat surfaces, right? You own the stuff coming in and out. And that, that means that there are certain things you don't have to think about. You never have to think about in your career as a medical provider. But now in COVID, the world is changing where that is still true and not true. And here's what I mean by that. Right now, worldwide, they are starting to move intact teams, intact medical teams, and breaking them to part and putting them as part of what are called X teams or swarms. So this idea that you will have a role, you're an anesthesiologist, you're a, you're a, a, a scrub nurse. It means that instead of you going to work into your same room with your same team, you may be dispatched to a stadium where there's a thousand beds so you can do intubations on a factory model with people you've never met in an environment where you may be cold, you may be hungry. They have to be there hungry all the time, actually. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it's a different mindset. And so there are things that you're going to have to sort of get your heads around and, and it, it, the death, like the death to your mind, fear is the mind killer to quote Star Wars, right? But one of the, one of the things that will distract you is this idea of having expectations as to what should happen. Oh, well, this shouldn't be this way. You got to get over that. It is what it is right now. It shouldn't be anything. It is what it is. Um, you just have to do one evolution at a time as Coleman was talking about. Yeah, for the group, we're going to try to, uh, we have about 22 or 32 minutes left here, which we'll use. We're going to try to keep these casts, these team casts to a digestible amount. So I want to hit a couple more topics, Preston, which is something, it's not administrative, but can you just talk for a second for the entire community, baseline where we are now with what we're doing with the courses, the summits, the way forward, the topics we're focusing focusing on now, things you think are most important for everybody just to be aware of. So as they, you know, get these every every couple of weeks or once a month or however many we manage to, you know, produce over the next year, that folks know what's going on and, and what, you know, what we're seeing out ahead of us. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because I've been doing recently some sort of retrospective research on things we've learned in the last 10 or 12 years. Um, but in order for you to understand that stuff, you have to understand what was happening back then. And so one of the, one of the really interesting things that FDNY deserves a lot of credit for was that um, I would go to these different teams around the world, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, US, and in special operations and tactical law enforcement, especially um, these folks tend to be um, pretty private, pretty insular and fairly competitive. And they don't think that they necessarily can learn from anyone else. They think everybody else is kind of like, ah, junior, junior varsity, we're varsity. Except that Preston was having Groundhog Day because I would go to all these different commands and have the exact same conversation over and over and over again. And so I would literally say to them, hey guys, your peers live an hour down the street. Why don't we all just go down there, have this conversation as a big group? And they're like, Preston, 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 you naive, clueless idiot. 
Here's the thing. Those are amateurs. They don't understand the world we're in. They don't understand the nuance, the speed we're operating. And I'm like, I got to be honest with you. I've been looking at you guys for a while now, and it doesn't seem all that different. They're like totally different. I was like, okay. So I was at, I was at the FDNY. And I'm explaining this problem and they all were laughing because they get it, right? They get how competitive and cultural and tribal all these groups can be. And they said, well, why don't you just invite them somewhere? And I was like, well, if I invite the FBI, if I invite everybody to the FBI, Secret Service won't come. If I invite everybody to Fort Bragg, Navy SEALs won't come. Like, in other words, wherever you do it, it's somebody's sort of opponent or competition, so to speak. It's not true, but that's how they thought it. And they said, well, hold it here. And I was like, what? They're like, everyone will come to the FDNY. And so that first year in 2012, we sort of tricked people. We, we really reached out to the most elite teams in the world. And we said, hey, guys, it's been, you know, 11 years since 9-11. Um, we want to bring all the selection and assessment folks together, all the trainers for these teams together at Randall's Island at FDNY to help the FDNY um, think about some of these, these issues moving forward. You need to understand the FDNY is a civil service movement, civil servants system. They're not going to benefit from most of what we're talking about, but they, they know that they want to be in service to these teams. So they get the teams together. We split them up on tables. So you, you got a Navy SEAL ne sitting next to like a special operation, an army special operations person next to an FBI, next to a NASA astronaut, next to, you know, whoever, wildland fire guy. And, um, men and women are in the room. And what I do is I ask them a series of questions. And all I'm saying is, I just, as a group, I want you to think about these questions related to selection, assessments, training, education. And then I want you to report back in. And, and when, the, when the meeting first started that first morning, everybody sat there, arms crossed, leaning back, waiting for you know, their moment to say they're genius, right? And then suddenly somebody broke the ice and they started to say, well, here's what we're facing. And everybody at the table, you watched it happen around the room. Everyone leaned in like, wait, what? You too? And suddenly there was this cascade, this contagion effect of everybody suddenly realizing they were in a room of people struggling with the same problems they had, but they weren't in their same echo chamber. So instead of having the same argument you'd have at home, now you can have it with this group of people that are genuinely empathetic, interested, and have some novel ideas. So that's what started it all, Coleman. That's, that was the conversation. So the question then is 12 years later, what's the emergent stuff coming up? Um, and there are some, some really interesting things happening. We now have gotten to a place where the teams are now talking to one another. And they're talking to one another regularly. And as a result, um, we're now able to leverage things like mental strength and conditioning from professional sports to really dig into what really matters when it comes to um, preparing folks. When it comes to selection and assessment, what can we really learn about how do you select people really? Like not from a biased group thing, tribal way, but no kidding, how do you find the right people? Then there's this question of, let's say you have a candidate that's not succeeding, right? Well, ask yourself, what percentage of that is the actual aptitude of the candidate? And what percentage of it is the instructor lacks the tools and technology to actually provoke, right, um, to that, the, the potential within that candidate? And these are things that we're exploring right now. Um, which, of course, let me just hold you on that topic, President, which, of course, comes back to where we started, right? Because it, it, for most of us, and I'm self-implicating here, I'm putting myself in the, in, in, back in 2008, if someone were to 
you know, provoke that question in me, which is, I, I can tell you, Preston, look, this guy's not cutting it, yeah. right? I, I, I have a hundred reasons why he's not cutting it. Yeah. And, and, if, and if you were to say, well, a part of that just might be Coleman, you don't have the tools to provoke the right response yeah. in him, or you don't understand if it's a detect, if, if his issues are detection issues, recognition issues, reaction issues, response issues, or issues around resetting himself, yeah. Yeah. right? I, I would have said, well, yeah, nice perspective, dude, but who else are you going to get to train him? Like, this is it. Yeah. It's me and these yeah. other eight guys, right, every day watching and assessing. And um, we, you're, you're right in that the community has certainly arrived at a point where there should always be pushback, just yeah. like I would have pushed back in 2008. Yeah. But if we really want to be experts and we really want to, you know, walk around and be elite teams – it doesn't matter how naturally good one or two instructors are who probably do have the tools to provoke that kind of training response. Our responsibility, so the community knows what we feel our responsibility is inside of MCTI, is to provoke that awareness so that every team and every trainer and every teammate and instructor can, de- can decide for themselves what things can I pull and use that are going to make me 1% better? Because in, in Coleman Ruiz's opinion, any team that says they're elite or experts, uh, it must be synonymous with always, as I say, trying to turn the dial 1% more to get 1% better at whatever they do. If we ever find ourselves in a position where we're just like, we're so damn good, it's scary. Yeah. And, and we don't do anything else. Yeah. then, um, you know, we're sort of frozen in time. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? At the edge of things, and we're talking about teams that work at the edge of things. And the only thing, the only thing that matters at the edge of things is relevancy. And if you're not learning, you're not being relevant. And they, you will get replaced. History just shows that. That's not me. Like, I'm just telling you what happens. What happens is you stay relevant or you get replaced with somebody who is relevant. And what's interesting there is that the only thing that matters to be relevant on your team is trust and competence. Like you can do research for days and days and days, but the end of the day is, do you have trust and competence? Do you have trust in that candidate? And are they competent? And if you can answer those two questions, then we're good to go. There's other things that come into play though. And so one of the things that we talk about, because people who don't understand our work will say, Oh, so Preston Coleman, what you want to do is you want to find a way to get everybody through selection. Nope. Not at no all. way. No way. It's the, the fact is, and this is a conversation that's really important, is that your selection process, however long it is, is only a certain amount of runway. And that plane needs to take off by the end of that runway. And some people say, well, we can extend the runway, right? We'll make it a little longer. We'll give them additional scales. We'll give them additional coaching. Here's the problem. What you're selecting them for isn't a job. It's joining a community that's going to go out and solve and resolve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets, which means these candidates need to have a certain rate of learning. They have to learn at a certain rate in order to be successful at their job. That's part of what you're actually selecting for. And so extending the runway is an artificial way to solve another problem that actually is going to cause you more problems down the road because they won't be actually to do the thing you're asking them to do. But, and this is really important, you assume that the, the length of your runway is built correctly. It's not. 
What we're talking about is not extending the runway, but ripping up the runway, parts of the runway to improve on its, on its performance. That's what we're talking about. The metaphor is a bit stretched there, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. The point for the, you know, for all the guys from my old types of communities who are like, yeah, good idea, Preston, the administrative pieces of our system, DOD, fire, whatever, don't allow us to rip up the runway. We look, nobody gets that more than, than we do. We understand it's conceptually making sure we're designing our training systems for what's happening in the real world today and being mindful of that versus that legacy mentality, which we know is not helpful. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. If you do, Preston, you should share them with the group now in terms of um, knowledge doubling, how yeah. fast knowledge would double in 1970, how fast it's, it's doubling now. Just as a matter of, look, we can all feel that our operating environments are, are lots of things are making them move faster. Um, but anyway, if you have those numbers, that's a useful little anecdote. Sure. In 1900, Buckminster Fuller estimated that the world's codified knowledge would double every 100 years um, by Albert uh, Toffler in 1970 with Future Shock estimated that had been reduced to seven years. And 2010, IBM released a report saying it was doubling every 11 hours in 2010. So we know that the world's codified knowledge, that is to say all the books in the library, is doubling on an hourly or minute basis. Why does that matter? It matters because of how we conceptualize expertise. It used to be that expertise was something that meant that you were saturated in the knowledge of that subject. That's no longer possible. It's not. And so our conceptualization, our conceptualization, sorry, the way we think about expertise has to change. What do we really mean? And here's an exercise you can do for yourself. Take a piece of paper and write down what you think, no kidding, what you think you're an expert at. That you would stand up in a room and say, I have expertise in X. Then go on a Google Scholar and type that in. These are, this is, Google Scholar is the web search for all of the journal articles, the codified knowledge, the, the scientific knowledge of a subject. And what you're going to find is probably hundreds of thousands or millions of articles. And so the question is, have you read them all? And even if you haven't, you, they would change, like legitimately change by tomorrow. And so what you have to start asking yourself, what do you mean by expertise? And it matters when you're training elite teams because it's changing. For example, there are some elite teams right now who think of themselves as experts in move, shoot, and communicate. When in reality, what they're experts at is influence. They're influencing outcomes. They're influencing relationships. That's what their true expertise is. Now, move, shoot, move, shoot and communicate is part of that, but it's not actually why we need them. It's not why the government's employing them. They're employing them to influence an outcome. And if you understand that conceptually, other things become possible. Yeah, with, uh, so let me back up one more time yep. to, to how we started pressing. We started talking about 2008, your dinner with Chris Warner and, and Vikram and a few other folks. And I just highlighted this when you were speaking because I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to talk about it here in this history background of MCTI before we you know, move forward into the next couple of team casts, which is going to be a little bit more topical focus. But you mentioned that the question you were asking yourself back in 2008 and you're asking Chris and, and have continued to ask are, uh, why do some people make it and some don't? Navigating uncertainty and risk and why am I here and, and some people aren't? Just for whether it's what we've actually learned or it's just what Preston thinks I think it's worth answering that a little bit. Why 
do you think some people make it and some don't? Why is Preston here and some people aren't? And it's just a useful topic to to finish up with. Yeah, I agree. So a um, couple of obvious things. There's no simple answers to this question, um, but we do know more than we did. To answer this question, you have to start with one full premise, which is we are not God, right? There is an ancient uh, Greek term called hubris, which is believing that you have the same authority that God has. And if you go back to Greek fables, they treat hubris pretty poorly, the gods do. It usually ends pretty poorly. Um, and so humility is the first thing that you have to embrace. If you're going to go to the edge of things, if you're if you're Lambert, Laird Hamilton riding big waves, the first thing you have to embrace is humility. The waves are bigger than you and they will kill you. And so that's the first thing. And, and oftentimes what we see is people that lack humility are the first ones to zig rather than zag. The second thing becomes that it's about tools and techniques, mental tools, physical tools, things like that. It's not, it's not random. There is randomness, right? You are not God, right? And so chance plays a role. But what we're talking about now is those areas that we can influence, right? So for example, I was thinking about this the other day. Many of people are watching the, the, uh, the show on TV on F1, right? Um, Drive to Succeed, that, that amazing Formula One sort of um, series. And you have to think about it because if you know the history in the 1950s, they were seeing five deaths a year on average. Five drivers a year were dying. Today, it's rare that you have one driver a year die. Why is that? It's not, racing's gotten faster, right? The cars have gotten faster. The, the G-forces are more extreme. The impacts are more extreme. So how has the count got down? It's gotten down because we've gotten smarter. But here's the important part of that. We didn't stop driving, right? We kept driving. We just got better at all the systems around it by asking hard, hard questions, right? But here's the really interesting part about that. The, the drivers themselves were often the biggest opponents of things like helmets or roll cages, right? They were like, oh, that's not who we are. This concept of who we are is limiting that legacy piece. This is our legacy. This is what we come from. This is tradition. In a conventional mindset, all day long, and so when you get to the edge of things, you need teams that are willing to change the rules, change how the legacy is, change what they wear and how business that they do, right? And so that, ne- that need to adapt to the next problem set is key. And that's a mindset. It's a mindset that you have to give yourself permission to be agile in the face of emerging complexity. Um, and that, that re- requires that sort of loop of competence and confidence. So the question is, how do we build competence in, in a world where expertise has become so vague? And that's where the thing gets really, really tricky, Coleman. Yeah, very. The competence and, and confidence thing and with the world changing the way it is, is a, is a challenging topic because, look, we all in these communities, these MCT communities, and as humans, folks operating in ambiguous, volatile, you know, asymmetric environments, um, the type of people who succeed in these environments have ambition. I mean, they want to be really good at what they do. And, and we are all really good at what we do. The, the scary thing is coming to the realization that as the environment changes, and I know our wildland firefighters can talk about this for hours, given what we're seeing with fires across the world these days and how they're changing, is our expertise is almost being yanked out from underneath us at times 
which is very unsettling and, and frankly, like super frustrating yeah. because the amount of time that we put in to become, you know, quote unquote experts yeah. is now being, again, it's being ripped out from underneath us. Like, and it isn't, our community's not changing it. The environment is just demanding that we look at things, you know, a little bit differently. Yeah. And one of the interesting things to be very tactical, right? As we close this, start to move towards the end, we should get try to be real tactical. What can you do better on Monday? Yep. One of the things that people need to really think about is the fact that data and information is the new food and alcohol, right? We have so much of it that yeah. it's actually hurting us because we're at the buffet and we think we should consume all of it. And that's just not a good idea with food, alcohol, or information. And so everybody's getting more emails than they can respond to. And what they're doing is they're trading this need to email against time with their family, time for reflection, time for reset, time for recovery. And people are going to have to start developing habits, personal habits around information discipline in a way that's never had, never been required before. Um, and these, these are individual choices. Your organization won't be able to do this for you. You literally are going to have to sit down and go, when do I need to be on the phone? When do I need to be on the computer? And when don't I? Um, and that's something that all teams are wrestling with because information overload is an actual threat now. And, and if you're trying to make decisions in, um, you know, 300 seconds or less, having access to the right information and the right amount of information, two different things, um, is a problem set we haven't yet figured out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll always, um, you know, make sure we come back to uh, what can you do on Monday, which we, we always talk about as something a little bit tactical. And certainly right now with uh, COVID and this global pandemic and the way we're sort of, you know, isolated at least from our teammates, whether it's in athletics being canceled or mission critical teams or businesses who, you know, we still talk to a lot of business colleagues about this. One of the metaphors I always remind myself and, you know, teammates and friends just chatting about this, Preston is like, if you're a fire, when it, when it comes to uh, the, the world's moving really fast, our expertise is challenged. Yes. But here's always the, but for Coleman, or again, a reminder to myself and my teammates, bullets still fly straight and kill people. Fires are still hot. Yep. If you're a business person, a sales call is still a sales call. Yep. We do have to remember that the physics, many things of like the laws of physics haven't changed. You know, when you talk about fitness, you still have to drink enough water. You still have to work out enough to stay in shape. It's like, and what do I mean by all that is try to reduce, certainly in times like this, try to reduce the way you look at the environment down to the first principles of things that absolutely have not changed. Um, because stick that can help us sort out our priorities in a chaotic time like this. You know, uh, uh, somebody coming into the emergency room in a hospital is still a human with a problem and you're still a doctor and it can still be addressed, right? Otherwise, it's easy for us to let the environment, you know, kind of take over our thinking. Yeah. We almost jump to assume uh, I don't even know what to do anymore. Like, no, no, you know exactly what to do, you know, and I just want to make sure we leave folks with that encouragement. I agree. And one of the really interesting things for everyone who's listening is this. Um, one of the things I love to do when I'm around uh, operators in any of the mission critical teams is ask uh, one, of one or two of these kinds of questions. You'll get what I mean. The first question I ask is how long is 60 seconds? Now for your average human, they're going to be, they're going to stare at me and go shake their head and go, it's, it's a minute, Right. And then I'll say, what's your next answer? And what the operators will do, and what I mean by operators is I mean 
a mother who's just gone through labor or somebody who's just done an ocean rescue, they will pause and they will think about, oh, 60 seconds. 60 seconds, either a lifetime or it's no time at all, right? If you ask a firefighter, based on how old they are, how hot is hot? They'll give you a different answer. They'll look off in the middle of distance and they'll be like, oh, Preston, how do I explain that to you, right? Here's what's happening right now in the world. We have medical professionals. They're entering a world. They don't know how long 60 seconds is and they don't know how hot hot is. But some of you do. And so what I would ask for everybody who's listening is that if you've come from that world and you know people in the medical world, pull them aside. Say, you have to start thinking about this differently. As Coleman has written recently, you need to start thinking about this as deployment. And you need to start thinking about this in terms of evolutions. And evolutions come in different heats and they come in different 60 seconds. But you need to have a different relationship with pain, a different relationship with time, a different relationship with heat, metaphorically, as well as real. But you have to start working on that now, and it won't come easily, but it will come, to Coleman's point. You have it within you. It, that strength, that experience, that wisdom is within you. But it's going to require a little bit of digesting, a little bit of reframing, a little bit of rethinking, but you're not alone. There are people on this call, there are people around the world that have this expertise and they want to share it with you, but they don't know you. So you got to reach out and ask for help. All right, great, great start. Preston, thanks for that. Um, for the group, let's do this. As, as you all know, um, MCTI is not a social media company. <laughs> and so you will not find us all over the socials, as people say. Um, if, you, if you go to Mission CTI. Mission Charlie Tango India dot uh, dot com. Uh, sign up at our website so you can at least get our newsletter, and uh, that's the way we communicate with everybody at once. Of course, we don't necessarily send out too many individual emails in that sense. Uh, the papers the next couple of months be looking out for, and we'll notify the group if you're signed up. The papers are going to be posted on the website in a section called resources. The podcast will be posted there. The transcripts will be posted there and we'll be releasing these, I think, once we figure out where we want to post it to all the normal spots, yep. um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We'll notify the group via the um, distribution list. Uh, and yeah, so just look out for more activity in this sense. Go the ahead, Preston. The one other thing I would add is that one of the things that we're going to do methodologically um, for the medical care providers is that for the next few papers, uh, we're going to be releasing surveys, and those surveys will have a live report. So why, do, you know, no one likes filling out surveys. I get that. But here's the thing. That is a way for you to directly communicate with frontline medical folks. It's a way for you to give your knowledge and transmit it to them directly in a very cohesive and crowdsourced way. So as you read our articles, you're going to see a link below them for a survey and then the report, which is live. So you can see how everybody's responses are coming up. Go ahead and fill it out. Share it with people. The more data we have, the better advice we can give. Um, and so I encourage everybody to participate. Um, keeping them alive keeps us alive. There's, you know, you got some skin in the game here. So. Yeah, fantastic. The last, the last note administratively, um, we obviously want your input, support, at missioncti.com uh, as far as the email goes. Um, lots of people have our individual emails. We're going to try to, you know, limit that. If you can send suggestions, I want to hear this person interviewed. I want more on this topic. How can we help you? How can you help us support at missioncti.com? 
thanks for everybody uh, listening to the, to the first podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.